At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition-free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. Welcome to the Man of God Network, a podcast ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. When I arrived in Grand Rapids, Michigan in December of 1988, I discovered a gold mine at the used bookstores, Kriegel, Baker, and even Erdman's. And looking through those old books at Kriegel Bookstore, I discovered a magazine that would be bound in annuals, as they commonly were, from the early 1830s and then on for a number of years, called The National Preacher. In our day, most of us have heard of Sermon Audio, and many pastors put their sermons on Sermon Audio. In those days, everything went to print, and a selection of the best Sermons from the best preachers in the day found their way into that magazine, and I would read a number of them even though I didn't know the authors necessarily or the pastors who preached them. But one author I did know was the Reverend Albert Barnes, who was a Presbyterian pastor in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I came across this sermon that really affected me. And as I've mentioned here before, it's because of the grasp of the English language and the power of it. Uh, from about 1800 through the 1840s, that really made an impression on me. And this sermon by Albert Barnes is called The Development of the Christian Character, which I'd like to narrate here. It's actually the third time that I've narrated this, but I wanted to do a fresh version specifically for the Men of God podcast for our seminary. It is taken from Matthew 5, verses 14 and 16. In narrating sermons for 36 years, there are those sermons that really affect me with a sense of eternity. And there was just something about how this was worded that has stuck with me for a number of years when I reflect back upon it. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. This passage of scripture implies that there is a difference between Christians and other men. It is a radical and permanent distinction as regards their principles of action. My object is to show that this difference will manifest itself in the life. This I shall endeavor to do by showing first that this difference will be developed. And secondly, by inquiring what there is in the circumstances of the Christian adapted to bring out his Christian principles. The first is that the principles of Christian piety will be in fact developed in the life. By this I mean that he who is truly a Christian in his heart will be in his life. That his conduct will be not merely that of a professor or a moral man, or an amiable and estimable member of his family in the community, but that he will be a religious man, that you may know where to find him on any subject pertaining to the kingdom of Christ. Now that this will be the case, it does not require many words to prove. For first, the nature of the change is such that it cannot 
but develop itself. Regeneration effects no direct revolution in the intellect, but it does in the heart. None in the essential stamina of the mind, but it does in the principles of action, and in the volitions, desires, and preferences of the man. Nor is it a slight change. It is so great as to make it proper to apply to it the terms new creation, new birth, and life from the dead. There is no other change in the human mind like it. None so deep, so thorough, so abiding. This is so clear in the Bible as to need no further proof. Now, the proper place to manifest such a change is in the life, and such a change, if it exists, will be manifest there. Neither the nature of mind nor of religion will or can prevent it. Important revolutions in a man's principles on any subject we expect will be exhibited there. Nor have we any evidence that they have occurred until we witness them in a man's deportment. But the change in a man's religious views and feelings in regeneration is one that affects him not in any one department of life, but in all of them. It is not a revolution whose effects we expect simply in the church, or in the family, in the external conduct, or in the abandonment of vices, but in all the appropriate circumstances of the man's life. If a revolution like that exists, it will be seen. It will constitute him a new man in Christ Jesus. Number two. The same thing is clear from the declaration of the text. It is not you ought to be the light of the world, but you are. Not that Christians should be like a city set on a hill, but an affirmation that they are such. Though exhortations are addressed to Christians in the New Testament urging them to a life of faith, yet they are also addressed as actually putting forth the principles of piety and as true to their God and Savior. You who were sometime darkness or light in the Lord, believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. I thank my God, says Paul to the Romans, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. None of us lives to himself, and none dies to himself. It is unnecessary to multiply passages. All know that the New Testament abounds in expressions declaring the matter of fact, that the gospel has an ascendancy in the minds of its friends. Nor would it be necessary to advert to this circumstance, were it not that so many Christians are in the habit of regarding the Bible, rather than its field, with exhortations and commands, which they are not expected to comply with, than with sober statements of what the gospel actually does accomplish among men. The truth is, God contemplated that the gospel should have effect, and such was, in sober verity, the early effect of the gospel. That Paul could address any church as actually manifesting the mighty change wrought by the Spirit of God. You are our epistle, he said to the church at Corinth the living, standing proof at once of the power of the gospel and of the effect of his ministry. We have fallen on different times. The language addressed to churches is not you are, 
what you ought to be, the consistent followers of the Lord Jesus. Oh, when shall we be free from that miserable theology which only chills, paralyzes, and freezes, that false philosophy which fetters the soul and binds the energies of the children of God, and that spirit of slumber which compels the ministry, if they would speak the truth to their people, to say you ought to be the devoted followers of Christ, in which seals our mouth when we would say you are living monuments of the power and grace of God. Let not refuge be attempted here, in a plea that the people whom Paul addressed had been heathen, and that therefore the change would be more manifest, and this sort of appeal would be more proper. True, they had been heathen, and the change was a proof which no infidel has met yet, that the gospel was from God. But the ground of the address to the primitive Christians was not what they had been, as much as what they then were. Besides, is it reserved for us to meet a remark like this, that a people nursed in heathenism but yesterday, degraded to the level of the brute, and sunk in every species of abomination, were to be addressed as actually in advance in Christian principles of the people of our times, and trained from their earliest years in the great principles of the Christian religion? Are we to expect more living demonstrations of the power of piety from the recovered population of Athens, Corinth, and Rome, than from the people of these times, more of its ceaseless energy, my Christian brethren. The gospel contemplates it as a manner of sober fact that we can appeal to you and to all Christians and say, you are, not you ought to be the light of the world. We can address a language of obligation of, of duty to the most degraded population on the globe, we can approach the profligate and the profane and the pagan with the language you ought to be humble followers of God. We can approach true Christians with the language of certainty and say, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Nor is any man a Christian who cannot be addressed in that language. The same thing is clear if we look at the instances which are mentioned in the New Testament. In the case of Christ, it is beyond the possibility of doubt, nor is it unfair to adduce him as a case in which the principles of religion were developed. True, he had no unholy propensity and needed no change, but his principles were put to the test, and to a test unequaled in the life of man. On one occasion, such is the pressure of circumstances, such is intense anxiety, and such a magnitude of the great inquiry that he said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour, this impending calamity, this terrific, sad and painful death? Shall I abandon this work, yield in the conflict, and pray to God to save me from approaching woes? His own decision is well known. Father, glorify your name. Let calamity come. Let me suffer. Let me die. But honor your name. Scarcely less clear was the case of the apostles. Who could doubt what were the principles of Paul? And yet Paul at conversion might have pleaded what would be pleaded by thousands of professors as a reason why their religious principles are obscured. 
It was not that he had no prospect of honor, and ease and affluence that he became so decided a Christian. The path to fame and wealth was open before him. Oh, how much persecution and poverty, contempt and danger, might he have avoided but a little that regard to ease and affluence which thousands bearing the same honored name of Christian manifest. How easy for him also to have sunk the Christian in securing the honors of office, the friendship and applause of mankind. But Paul judged differently. So of Peter, of John, of Moses, Daniel, Ezra, Elijah, and John the Baptist. See Abraham leaving the land of his fathers at the command of God. See Moses despising the splendors of royalty. See Daniel encompassed with danger and death. See the martyrs, witnesses for God, while the flame encompassed the body, or their sinews were torn by the rack. See the Son of God, always a friend of his father, always showing what he was, and you have an illustration of what the Christian principle is, and is intended to be. There is no principle in the universe that can be brought to bear on the mind with such weight as a religion of the gospel. There is nothing that can develop the principles of man, if it be not the gospel, and yet we know it is easy by far inferior tests to find out a man's character. Horace Walpole long since remarked that every man has his price. A man whose predominant passion is avarice can be corrupted. A small sum may not do it, but you may multiply the temptation till his principles shall come out. Thus, it was not a trifling bribe that could move Lord Bacon, but he might be bought, and it was done. One form of pleasure, or one degree of vice, may not corrupt a man, but another will. So the natural principles of the heart may be brought out. Your father languishes on a bed of death. His dying sufferings will recall you from the place of folly or business to minister to his wants. Or in other words, the principles of filial affection will overcome those which are leading you to vice. Your country bleeds. It will test your patriotism. Its great sufferings may overcome the love of the fireside, and you may welcome the toils of the camp and the perils of the field. The sufferings of your country have brought you out and shown you what you are. But none of these motives test a character like the religion of Christ. God, by that plan designed to effect what no other plan could do, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak, through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be manifested in us. Law, philosophy, morals had failed to restrain and reform men, but the gospel has been effectual. In millions of cases, men have been changed, redeemed, purified, saved, so that it has become an established manner in God's government that the gospel is powerful enough to overcome all the tendencies of sin. It will unclench the hands of the stoutest avarice, silence the profaneness of the boldest blasphemer, make pure the most corrupt heart and stay the strides of the most haughty. 
There is not a grasp on gold or pleasure, which the gospel has not the power to break. And there is not a sinner, who, if he fairly comes under his dominion, will not become a holy man. Your strongest propensities it may subdue, your protestations of morality it may destroy, and your most gigantic schemes of corruption it may demolish in the dust. For thousands of such sinners as you are, it is humbled, prostrated, changed into holy men. No persecutor is secure that he can accomplish his scheme before he shall be arrested by it. The band, sent to arrest a savior, were awed, humbled, convinced by his eloquence, and returned saying, Never man spake like this man. Paul was arrested in his mad career, despite his malice and his commission. How can it be that this mighty gospel, that is appalled by no towering crime, that cowers before no propensities, that fears no titles, no splendor, and no renown, that prostrates haughty men as easily as it does the tempest and proudest oak or cedar of Lebanon, that can enter into any circle of corruption, and shed the peace of Eden around the habitation of the profane, and the scoffer, and the drunkard, that carries its principles into the profoundest minds, and sheds its humility into the proudest hearts. Is it possible that it can exist and not be manifest? Can it do all this and no one know it? Can it live and act thus and never be developed? Then may the light rest on the mountaintop and the veil, and no one see it. Then may the city lift its turrets to the clouds and be invisible. Then may the winds of heaven prostrate the pride of the forest or the habitations of men and no one know it. And then may the ocean swell and pour its surges on the shore and no one be aware of commotion. It must, it will stand out in the view of man. If it accomplishes such changes, they will be seen. And if it ever grasps any human spirit, it must show its power in the life. We are prepared to remark, secondly, that the world is fitted to develop the principles of men, and eminently those of the Christian. The plan of God and his moral government is to test the character, nor are any rewards conferred until the character is ascertained. The whole arrangement of his moral government is such as to show what man is, and such as to make the sentence of the day of judgment be seen to be just. Men are allowed to become learned, to see whether they are disposed to employ their learning for the welfare of the universe. They are allowed to accumulate wealth, that the native propensity of the heart may be brought out, objects of fame, of ambition, of pleasure pass before the mind. It is not that God may know, but that a fair trial may be made. Before that trial shall be made, a sentence of condemnation would appear to be unequal. When man has been fairly tried, when virtue and vice, heaven and hell, honor and dishonor have been fairly brought before him, it is right that God should address him and say to him, Bear that character with you to eternity. Again, the organization of the world is adapted to develop the character of the hypocrite. Were true religion less decisive and less powerful, it would be more difficult to determine the character. 
but religion is designed to produce a thorough change in all of the man. It becomes in a manner comparatively easy to determine the character of those whom the Savior describes as neither cold nor hot, those who have a standing among the professed people of God, and yet in works deny him. In a world like this, and in a community organized as the Christian church is, man never need mistake his own character. It is not the fault of God if men are deceived. So decisive is the gospel that it must, and it will, produce the effect of testing the man. He that is not with me, said the Savior, is against me. Look at any instance of a hypocrite in the church, and there will occur occasions when his character shall be fully tried. And it will be seen whether he is willing to surrender the world for the sake of the gospel. Judas must find an occasion to manifest his avarice and sunder the slender and feeble bond by which he was united professedly to the Savior. It was done, and he fell. He had his price. And such was the paramount ascendancy of the lump of gold in his heart that for thirty pieces of silver, a price at which religion has often been sold, he was willing the Lord of glory should die. Achan must find an occasion in which his prevailing principle should be tested. The occasion arrived, and for a wedge of gold and a goodly Babylonish garment, he exposed the camp of Israel to the vengeance of God. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, the same principle was again to be developed, and their lives paid the forfeit of the accursed love of gold in the church. It is not this withering passion alone that will be tested by the gospel. It is adapted to try the hypocrite in all of his subterfuges, in all his mental reservations, in all his evasions to escape the simple and decided duties of Christian piety. Every demand of truth or duty brings his character out. The doctrines of the gospel disturb or disgust him. Those solemn and awful and yet tender truths which go beyond the coldest moral sentiments and which speak of the just government of God, of his sovereignty, of election, of hell, of holiness, and prayer, trouble him. Those expressions appear in advanced piety which speak of the higher joys of the Christian and tell of communion with God disquiet him, those sentiments which speak of active piety, which call on him for decided zeal in the cause of God, irritate him, those assaults which religion makes on his corrupt feelings, those reproofs which he administers when he conforms to the world, those denunciations which thunder along his path when he lives just like other men and is ashamed of the religion which he professes to love, provoke him. His mind is ruffled by the demands of a life of sincere and prayerful piety. And hence Job asks, respecting the hypocrite, will he always call upon God? Do movements of piety enrage him? Efforts made to advance a religion of Christ find no response in his bosom and meet only sour, cold, and repulsive feeling. A revival of religion is a phenomenon in which he has no interest, which is neither the object of his solicitude nor his prayer. 
The great movements of Christian benevolence excite no kindred emotion in his soul. Efforts or wealth in that cause are deemed by him a dead loss. He has no tears to shed over suffering and sinful man. Now every time the gospel is offered to such a man in any of its forms, it tests character. And if God would not allow him to go to hell without knowing what he is, as if he would meet him at every corner, test him in all the departments of his soul, and throw himself in the way of the sinful and wretched man, he has varied the tests of the man's character so that he cannot but know what manner of spirit he is of. By searching and uncompromising doctrines, by truths repulsive to the native heart, by demands on his piety and his prayers occurring every hour in his family, in his professional life, in his intercourse with man, in the great designs of Christian benevolence, he meets the man everywhere and gives him an opportunity to determine whether he will serve God or mammon. One thing is clear. Whoever goes down to woe, murmuring at the justice of God, or complaining that there was no opportunity to test a character, it will not be the man deceived in the Christian church. Whatever the pagan or the Jew or the Mussulman may do, it is clear that no man goes from the bosom of the church of God to the judgment of condemnation without having his character fairly brought out and fully seen in the eye of the universe. When year after year passes by, and a man still retains his place at the communion table and will not be a Christian. And when having gone through 10,000 trials, where he had an opportunity to show that he was a pious man and did not, no blame will be by him attached to God if he dies in this condition and his home be made with other hypocrites and unbelievers. And the wonder is that in these circumstances man will retain such a place in the church of God and subject himself to all the goadings of a guilty conscience and the irritations of truth and the corrosions of remorse and the consciousness of inconsistency for the poor and paltry benefits that result from professed adhesion to the people of God. The hypocrite will go to eternity thoroughly tested. And as God manifestly intends that his condemnation shall be monumental and admonitory with a disastrous preeminence, even in hell, so he has taken care that the case shall be fairly brought out, and that the wretched man shall have full opportunity to escape the terrific pangs of the second death. Again, the organization of the world as such is to bring out the character of the sincere Christian, and one grand point of God's moral government was so to shape the economy of human things as to open the finest field for its display. Religion starts into life principles of action that are ultimately to have the ascendancy in the soul. It calls up dormant powers, awakens new energies, urges to conflict with the powers of darkness, and bids man grapple with invisible and most mighty foes. Let any Christian contemplate for one moment the situation in which he is placed, and then let him ask whether this organization does not contemplate the fact that his piety will be developed. What is a Christian religion? It contemplates the subjugation of his native propensities, the overcoming of his evil passions, the purification of a corrupt heart 
the discipline of a vain and wayward and rebellious mind. It demands that chastened and serious feelings should take the place of frivolity. Personal prayer, that of thoughtlessness, the love of God, that of the love of fashion, and delight in the scenes of devotion, the place of delight in the scenes of amusement and vanity. Can these exist and not be manifest? And is it not the very nature of godliness that it should stamp itself in the life in letters indelible and legible by all men? See the condition of the Church of God. What may be in better times in those brighter periods of the world to which human affairs under the gospel are tending, we don't know. But hitherto and even now there is just enough of opposition among men to all that is pure and meek and humble to make it indispensable that there be a line distinctly drawn between the friends and the foes of God. Christians have been a little band, a remnant amid the tribes of men. They, spiritually alive, move among the dead. They tread a world in possession of the enemies of God. They are the healthy among the sick, the sane among the insane, the sober among the gay, the pure among the dissolute, the living among the tombs. Their very presence is a rebuke on human pursuits. Their views a reprobation of the opinion of others. Their lives are a living reminder of the folly and crimes of men. Now there is not a single principle of your religion that is peculiar to it, which men of the world do not at heart hate, in relation to which they will not manifest their hatred in appropriate times and ways. In proof of this, I need only refer you to your own native feelings respecting the piety of the gospel. I could point you to the opposition, to the same principles and the life and death of your great Master and Redeemer, and I could point you to a thousand fires of persecution which lit up the darkness of the past generations, shedding their beams on times of profound night and on skies of thickened clouds, fires lighting the steps of one generation to another, to the gardens of Nero, to the valleys in Piedmont, and to the flames of Smithfield. I could point you to thousands of dungeons, dark and dismal, where holy men have drawn out their lives, illustrating the estimate in which their piety is held by the men of this world. But it is not needful. I affirm that there is opposition enough in any age to test your character and show what you are. It may meet you in the family, and perhaps your own father shall reprove you for being a Christian, or the tongue of a brother shall deride you for your serious piety. It may meet you in the circle of your friends, and a voice of professed affection shall speak of you as gloomy and superstitious for your humble and conscientious regard for God. It may meet you in public and political life and subject a soul to a daily and constant test whether there is strength of piety sufficient to avow the despised doctrines and precepts of the cross and to make them the governing principle of your life. They who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And one design of persecution is to develop the strength 
of the Christian principle. There are allurements enough to try the Christian principle in this show. The believer, what he is. A corrupt and giddy world is around him, testing his character. Places of amusement open their doors. The sound of the viol, the harp, and the organ invite you. A deeper and still more damning places of guilt often are presented to the Christian. The theater. The places of abomination where God is derided and virtue defied and ridiculed and cursed. Dare to invite even a friend of God. And all such allurements try. The character. They ascertain whether you have strength of Christian principle to resist the sin when it is presented in alluring forms and maintain your integrity when the voice of the siren invites you. So the path of ambition is open before a man to see whether he will consent to sink the Christian character for the sake of office, whether he can climb the steps of fame with Christian simplicity of character, or whether he prefers a veil of humble piety, contend with the esteem of men and the unalloyed hopes of heaven. So the business, the enterprise, the gains of commerce are presented to the view. The splendors of wealth allure. The ports of the world are open for successful commerce. Wealth glitters in the eye, and it invites you to toil and enterprise. That you should refuse to devote yourself to industry and make full proof of commercial skill will not be maintained. But who would dare to maintain that here was no signal an imminent trial of the Christian spirit? Again, there is enough of affliction in the world to try the Christian, nor is there one of us who, in the course of our lives, shall not have full opportunity to show what we are in times of trial, bereavement, and woe. God designs it there. The Christian principle shall triumph, that it shall be fully equal to all the pains that we may be called to endure. He varies those afflictions to bring us fully and fairly out. Now he takes away our health to see how we will bear protracted disease. Now he removes our property to see how we will bear the loss of an idol. Now he cuts down the child of our hopes and tries whether we will be still and know that he is God. And now he opens before our own view approaching death to try whether we have confidence enough in him to commit our departing spirits to the guidance of his unseen hand in all these scenes. It is designed that our piety should shine forth with a benign and pure effulgence, brightening like the beams of the morning and burning with intenser rays, like the sun as it ascends above the clouds or looks forth from the tempest to ride the meridian sky. God has placed us in a world eminently adapted to call forth the peculiar principles of the Christian, and in a world, too, where, if those principles are not called forth, it is full proof that they do not exist. See a race of sufferers, a world of mourners, entire tribes of sinners, Christians. You hold in your hands that gospel which will send peace around the globe that glorious gospel of the blessed God that may enlighten all nations, alleviate every sorrow, comfort every mourner, and change the aspect of every kingdom and tribe of men. Nor can you be inactive or undecided on this subject. Every time this great question is presented to you, in whatever form, it calls on you to act. 
Every plan of benevolence that is submitted to you affords an opportunity to test your character and will actually develop that character. And as if God would present to his people the highest possible inducements to devote themselves to the good of men, he has placed before them an entire world of sufferers and sinners that they may make full proof of their Christian principle. Once more, Every Christian is placed amid domestic scenes and circles of friendship that will bring out his character. You have a child, unrenewed. That child will soon stand at the bar of God. Nay, that child shall tread the deep profound of the eternal world and live forever. Need we put to a Christian parent to excite his interest in the question whether that child shall live forever? in heaven or hell. There is a feeling in a Christian bosom that anticipates this question, and there is much in the situation of that child to bring the Christian out and develop his character. You have a parent who has watched over your infancy and been always kind, but that parent is not a Christian. Can there be anything among mortal men so fitted to call forth deep feeling in the youthful Christian bosom is a sight of the parent's venerable locks and the feeling that that parent is going unrenewed to the bar of God. Now, are these the things which we are to conceal? Are we to shut the great truths of our redemption from their view? Or what is the same thing? Are we to live as though these were not true? Are we to conceal in our bosoms that living an active principle which separates from others, and leave the impression on them that we esteem them safe? and that we have no belief of their danger? Are we to make all the arrangements of our livings, order all the circumstances of our families, array our persons with a splendid attire, and be as gay and giddy and thoughtless as they were, just like others, living for the same ends and putting forth no effort for their salvation? Who is it that practices concealment, the wretch, who has some plan of evil, the man who wishes to insinuate himself into your favor, to obtain by fraud your gold, the infidel, the drunkard, the gambler who is aiming at your money or your principles, the seducer who would undermine your virtue, and shall the Christian be ranked with such men? Is he a man who believes a thing in his heart, and attempts to pass off a different opinion in his life, and the last reason for the development of the Christian character is that God will in this way be honored. A mere profession does not honor him. A life of inactivity does not honor him. The most state and formal regularity where there is no Christian life does not honor him any more than the solemn corpse of the dead laid in a state is an honor to living men. The Christian honors God. The Son does that by his light the moon and the stars of heaven by theirs. So does a Christian by his light. The hills, the trees, the streams, the flowers, the ocean honor God. The Christian does it more than they all. One word spoke by them all into being, but your piety cost the labors, the long agonies, the groans of God's only Son. One word may turn them all to nothing, but your piety shall show forth his